Hey everyone, just wanted to put a note here at the beginning that this episode is a collaboration with the Clio Institute and the Florida Climate Pledge. Uh, the Clio Institute is an organization based out of Miami that focuses on climate change education, promotion, and community engagement. The pledge is an initiative to get folks in Florida to acknowledge the effects of climate change, sign a pledge, and uh, encourage them to act accordingly. Uh, so spread throughout the episode is some new music, as well as people telling us the story of why climate change is important to them. Other than that, it's a pretty normal episode, and um, I hope you all enjoy. Hi, my name is Jackson. And I care about climate change because I'm a native of South Florida and I have seen the effects that the climate crisis has had on our state firsthand. The first environmental disaster I ever experienced was the super algae bloom of the Indian River Lagoon back in 2011. A green slime swept over the entire estuary, starving our water of oxygen and killing off our fish and seagrass populations. My community of Vera Beach was entirely unprepared for an event like this that kept both tourists and residents alike out of the water for an entire summer. After 2011, things didn't get better. In fact, they got much worse. We now face these toxic algae blooms every single summer. Now the entire state of Florida is facing environmental disasters like these with increasing regularity. Red tides stretched up and down the east and west coasts of Florida, forcing residents to stay inside to avoid respiratory illness. Hurricanes like Dorian and Michael are increasing in intensity. It is not a matter of if a Category 5 hurricane will hit my hometown, but a matter of when. Sea level rise now threatens the totality of our coastal communities with saltwater intrusion, even infecting our fresh water supply. Hi, I'm Bella, and I care about climate change because as the climate crisis worsens, it will be the people of color and minorities that face the worst of it. With the increasing amount of hurricanes, sea level rise, and algae blooms, not everyone has an equal chance of adaptability. These people deserve a voice, which is why I signed the Florida Climate Pledge. Hello, everyone, and welcome to No Planet B, a podcast where we're talking about climate change and its effects on planet A. I'm Wyatt. This is Bree. Today, we're going to be talking about Jane Fonda, the housing market, and how it relates to climate change, and who knows what else. And who cares what else? <laughs> so if we're going to start talking about Jane Fonda, I kind of wanted to start with a sort of a, a three-part play. I'm going to read for you the title of, of three articles that I found. Oh. And to sort of set it up as a narrative a little bit. So here we go. <laughs> number one. Here comes article number one. Why Jane Fonda is moving to Washington for now. <laughs> article number two. Jane Fonda plans climate change civil disobedience on the Capitol steps. Third. Jane Fonda gets arrested for climate protest. Plans to do it again. And then we have a, an epilogue. Jane Fonda got arrested again. Make that the fourth Friday in a row. This is Buck Wild. So the first one of her planning to move to Washington, D.C. was what? Like mid, mid-October? mid The article today was the one saying that she got arrested for the fourth time in a row. For the fourth Friday in a row. She's 81. She's 81 years old? Yep. Wow. She's definitely that grandma that wears like leather jackets. 
Well, there's a picture of her. Yeah, first of all, <laughs> yeah. But there's the picture of her being, uh, what's the word? Not wrist tie. What are those things called? Wrist wraps, zip ties. There's a photo of her being zip tied, her wrists being zip tied, and she's wearing this sick red jacket that looks like something from Star Wars and a cowboy hat and sunglasses, and I'm very into it. The most recent one, she got arrested alongside Ted Danson, which is a pretty nice touch. This is from a tweet from Hannah Jewell that says, Jane just asked a group of very buttoned up college kids on a capital visit if they wanted to join her. Ted Danson added that getting arrested, quote unquote, sharpens the mind. Mm. So that's a lot of work. <laughs> getting arrested four times, four Fridays in a row. Brie, would you get arrested on a Friday? Um, I, I think it depends. Because some Fridays I'm really ready for the weekend, but other Fridays just feel like Mondays. <laughs> you have Fridays that feel like Mondays and those are better for getting arrested? Yeah. Like, you know, if I have plans that weekend, maybe I'd hold off, but... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think it's cool that she says Greta has been inspiring her to get out of her comfort zone. I don't know about you, but I, like, the elderly people that I speak with about climate change who mm -hmm. ag agree with climate science always are talking about how younger people inspire them. So I think that's a pretty cool narrative. <laughs> Grandma's grandmas, like her, Fonda says, need to get in the arena fighting global warming with the likes of Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. Yeah, no, Fridays, she calls fire drill Fridays. That's what the protests are called. How do you get arrested at a protest? Is that a dumb question? I mean, for being a badass. Ted Danson looks so happy being arrested. <laughs> oh, it says charged with unlawfully demonstrating. Uh, yeah, apparently she plans on chilling there throughout the holidays. So Merry Christmas! Ooh, Merry Christmas! She could have like a she could have like a Thanksgiving protest. Yeah. But Thanksgiving's always on a Thursday, though, isn't it? It sure is. So she's <laughs> on Black Friday, gonna be chilling. It's probably gonna be a real ass thing. Yeah, a cool for little sure. Black Friday protest. Mm -hmm. Grandmas unite! I quote. My name is Michaela. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I care about climate change because I want to protect all of the great biodiversity that we have here uh, from the mass extinction that's going on right now. Hi, my name is Natalie Montero. I'm from Miami, Florida, and I care about climate change because it impacts sea turtles, their nesting patterns, and hatchling production. I'm going to bring a less badass article into this. Basically, a, a new article was published in Nature Communications about how sea level rise is being sort of re-estimated by a new model, a new model that incorporates a better accommodation for error than previous models that NASA has provided. This one has just like a better AI for detecting elevation errors. This one is saying that Previous estimates of how many people are going to be affected by sea level rise by 2050 are a lot lower than they should be according to the less erroneous model, if that makes sense. By, okay, by um, 2050, old, old estimates would say that 250 million people are going to be affected by the sea level rise, meaning that sea levels and high tide are going to come up and inundate some populous cities. 
Um, so that's 250 million is the current estimate, whereas 340 million is the new one with less error. So basically, it seems that with new, less erroneous data, we're seeing that more cities are going to be affected than we previously thought. What are some examples of the cities? Ho Chi Minh City. We're looking at Bangkok. We're looking at Shanghai, Mumbai, just tons of like a lot of coastal cities. Mm. New projections suggest that much of Mumbai, India's financial capital and one of the largest cities in the world is at risk of being wiped out. Yeah, they have new maps of where the floods are going to be taking place. And they're, um, they're, they're pretty substantial if you look, if you compare old maps and new maps. Um, Basra, the second largest city in Iraq, could be mostly underwater by 2050. These findings don't have to spell the end of these areas. The new data shows that 110 million people already live in places that are below the high tide line. So that's without climate change, without sea level rise. Right now, 110 million people are already under the high tide line and they're still surviving. And they're saying that they attribute this to protective measures like seawalls and other barriers and that if we want to be smart about these new projected sea level rises we should be investing in defenses like seawalls and barriers and stuff like that but obviously things like that have already been attempted levees sometimes don't pan out in the face of natural disasters like hurricane katrina coming through louisiana that would be an example of people who are already living under the high tide line. So, I mean, more threats like that are going to be popping up if more people are going to be living under the high tide line in the future, which we do think now is the case. You, you took urban development with me, and do you remember our professor talking about building up, <laughs> like building cities vertically rather than horizontally? <laughs> Not really. You mean just like taller buildings? Yeah, to account for sea level rise. Like, people would live on top of each other rather than next to each other. Oh. I thought that was interesting. It's kind of strange. So not just, like, apartment buildings being taller, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, actual cities being ver- being vertical? I'm looking at vertical city right now. Dude, it's Technology so and medical advances enable people to live longer, healthier lives. Uh, overpopulation, overcrowding. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. People are starting to look to the vertical city concept as a solution to the growing and unavoidable problem. Uh, in short, a vertical city is an entire human habitat contained. This is from smartcitiesdive.com. In short, a vertical city is an entire human habitat contained in a massive skyscraper. We already kind of do that, though, don't we? It just means we wouldn't have roads anymore. Yeah, but we don't do it to the extent they're talking about. They're saying go taller. Get taller. Go taller. Rather than destroying forests and swamps to build houses, shopping centers, and factories, they can be placed in a vertical tower serving to preserve the environment. I think I played a a mobile game like this once called Tiny Tower. In a vertical (laughs) city, people would live, work, and go to school. In a vertical city, people would live, work, and go to school. That's not a helpful sentence because people people already be doing that. I guess just in the towers rather than traveling. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I mean, I do understand 
the potential benefits. What do you think is the already the world's most vertical city? Uh, Hong Kong. Are you looking at the article right now? <laughs> I don't think so. Because that is, that is it. Oh, cool. <laughs> I just I I when I picture like cities, I think of Hong Kong. Yeah, Hong Kong is uh, the first thing that came up as one of the most vertical cities currently. Um, and I don't know if that's by volume of vertical or if that's just by the tallest thing possible. Damn, pictures of Hong Kong are... Oh, I'm looking at Seoul, South Korea. Has 16,359 high-rise buildings. It's gorgeous looking, though. Holy mackerel. But then you have that heat island effect. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I don't know. And then you'd have to figure out how to deal with waste management that way, vertically. This The heat island effect, by the way, for if you haven't heard of it, is... The asphalt um, in the buildings reflect the heat from the sun more so and trap heat rather than as mm. if there if there's greenery, um, it, it there's more of a cooling effect. So it just it feels a lot hotter inside a city without any greenery than it would say I see in the countryside. All right, Brianna, can you tell us about the housing market? I sure can. Why? <laughs> it's funny you ask. So basically what I'm going to talk about is how the housing market may be facing a crisis soon with the effects of climate change taken into regard. So there's this little article I pulled off of Market Watch. The headline says climate change will break the housing market, says David Burt, who predicted the 2008 financial crisis. So basically what he's saying is that a lot of real estate is massively overpriced when you think about how vulnerable it is. He now leads an investment firm that believes it can profit from the lack of attention being paid to climate change. He says there's a lot of parallels with the 2008 crisis to today's crisis. A lot of the real estate overpriced. There's a lot of risk associated with that and other foreclosure crises. It's because the flood maps are underreporting the risks where people buy their properties. And the flood insurance, I think, is worth less now. Yeah, flood insurance policy policies have been declining since 2006. Households that purchased these properties um, may be at an increased risk of defaulting on their mortgages. According to this article, some 311,000 coastal homes will be repeatedly flooded um, within the next 30 years, if not destroyed. Oh, my God. So these houses are going to flood and people aren't going to be able to pay for it, basically? Yeah, definitely. The the real estate is overpriced if you take into consideration the risk factor. Ah, uh, okay. What what real estate people really should be saying is, "Hey, this million dollar home you're about to buy should probably be worth 300,000 because you know next year there could be a hurricane and it could be like underwater." <laughs> it could be underwater. <laughs> yeah, it's so quickly, so you know? easily, dude. Yeah. Yeah, that's something to take into account, especially with me and Wyatt, we're at that age where I mean, in a few years if we wanted to buy a house, that's the kind of thing we would take into account. So, I mean, I can't believe I'm turning 23. I feel so weird, but <laughs> I know people that's listening to this are probably like, house buying like, age. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> it's the I, perfect house buying age. No, I know some people though that have, wait, which is wait, strange. Wait, you don't have, you haven't bought a house yet? Oh, Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> have you not bought your house yet? Well, isn't there some sort of, um, movement going on where people aren't buying houses as much or is that just I, I've heard people say things Did I make that such up? as I'm gonna rent until the day that I die because why would I buy something 
Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know if that's a new thing or if I'm just talking to people that are consistently crazy, like cross-generationally crazy, but... Personally, I would. I don't see myself buying a home anytime soon. Like I wouldn't. So you're gonna rent till you die. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, these are things that our generation has to take into account soon. So. Yeah. Like, do you want to move to fair. California? Well, maybe your house will catch on fire. Do you want to live in Florida? Well, I don't know. Hurricanes, man. <laughs> Well, Mary, and I care about climate change because my family who lives in Puerto Rico was really affected by the past hurricanes and yeah. I care about climate change because it's not just environmental issues, it's about human rights and human justice. I love the environment and I love people and I want to see change. Switching from Florida to California, um, for the past um, few years, people have been looking to California as a counterweight to our current administration's dismantling efforts to combat climate change. Um, and they've been having wildfires, obviously. Everyone knows about that. The scientists say fires in California have been made worse due to climate change. Obviously, there are human reasons why the fires start, but the climate has made an environment where it's more likely to happen if something went wrong. Like, like say a spark started, it's way more dangerous now since the climate is hotter. They have drier seasons, less snowpack during the winter, and that creates drier vegetation. So that could catch on fire a lot more easily. The deadliest fires in California history have all happened within the past two years. Um, some examples of fires in California that have been deadly are the campfire, which was in the town of Paradise in the Sierra foothills, 86 died and nearly 19,000 homes were destroyed. There's also the wine country fires where about 40 people died and nearly 5,000 homes were destroyed. And then the largest um, area that was destroyed by fires was the Mendocino complex where 460,000 acres were destroyed by fire. This is affecting people that live there because this is crazy. I didn't know this. California's Pacific Coast Electric Company, which is a huge utility company, actually attempts to prevent fires through power outages. So sometimes people huh. will, will go without power if there is a high risk of a wildfire because the company doesn't want a spark to occur. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I didn't know, I didn't know that. So we, you just talked <laughs> about the housing market being affected by... Uh, sea level rise and then also it being affected by wildfires yeah the wildfires would just be a different example of something that has roots within climate change that is going to affect our housing market i have a quick would you like to do a, the wheel of sustainability would you like to spin this wheel would i ever give me a scale from one to ten how hard I'm going to spin this thing. Let's do a solid nine this time, because last time I went a little easy on you. Okay. Here comes the nine. And done. So we landed on land use, land use change, and forestry sector emissions. Wendy's? I thought you said Wendy's land use. <laughs> <laughs>
Wendy's spicy chicken nuggets, land use change, and forestry sector emissions. <laughs> spicy nugs are back. <laughs> and worse for the environment than ever. Um, <laughs> land use, land use change, and forestry sector emissions and sequestration. Now this one is a little bit of a cop-out. Almost like a trick question, because the past few times we've done the Wheel of Sustainability, we've talked about the different sectors that contribute to carbon emissions and how you can help cut them down. This one is actually offsetting carbon emissions. This one is a net sink, wherein it actually offsets the carbon emissions and is sequestering carbon. So sequestering carbon is a, any kind of process that takes carbon from the atmosphere and puts it in something else, which is like great. So plants absorb CO2 from the atmosphere as they grow and some store it as carbon as above ground and below ground biomass throughout their lifetime. Soils and dead organic litter can also store some of the carbon from these plants depending on how the soil is managed. So that's why when you hear about deforestation contributing to climate change, it's such a big factor because you cut down these trees or you burn down these trees, you're releasing all the carbon that they're storing, you're releasing carbon that's just set in the soil in the dead organic material, or like in the roots. So this is actually any sort of forestry, any sort of forest management in the United States has offset carbon emissions by roughly about 11%, which is actually pretty substantial. Examples of production opportunities in this sector are increasing carbon storage by using land differently or maintaining carbon storage by avoiding land degradation. So basically avoiding land conversion or deforestation. Another one is improving management practices on existing land use types which is also exciting, a pretty cool opportunity for jobs in the future. Utilizing reduced tillage practices on cropland and improved grazing management practices on grassland. Agroforestry is a pretty good one. Rotating in certain bushes and shrubs with trees cutting down at different times, not cutting down an entire forest area in one go, and then planting after deforesting or planting after um, either natural or human-induced forest disturbances to get plants back up after they've been taken out. So thanks for coming to my Wheel of Sustainability. That might be the last one before I have to recalibrate and make a couple new ones. <laughs> does, does your wheel in the sky keep on turning? <laughs> <laughs> it will. It'll have to. Uh, I have my little ending quote. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> okay. So actually, I actually stole this one from Trevor Noah. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, all the people on the street that were saying the world was going to end, mm -hmm. turns out they're just climate scientists. <laughs> Very nice. You're welcome. <laughs> and thank you. And thank you so much. Thanks, Trevor Noah. If y'all have enjoyed the show, this has been No Planet B. We're at No Planet B cast on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Wyatt, did you say you were going to put your phone number in the credits of this episode? Um, yeah, I can do that. My phone number is... <laughs> Here, my phone number is 850-879-1996. Uh, not a joke. <laughs> so, so if you oh want to send me a text, I might. It's fine. Oh, it's you're gonna fine. regret that. Go you're gonna, you're gonna regret that. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. Here's the thing. I don't think there's any possible way I'm gonna regret that. There's no way that anyone. <laughs> there's no way anyone's gonna make me regret doing that. Unless I start. Unless unless some motherfuckers start sending me texts that say globe emoji is fake, world is flat. I think I'll be fine. <laughs>
I, well, I do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, that was my phone number, and this has been No Planet B. Thank you for listening, and have have a great rest of your uh, Wyatt's phone number. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> See you on the internet. See you. Waterman, 224 today. Hi. I'm in a weird Wikipedia spiral about the medieval kings of England. <laughs> yeah. I was. <laughs>